Welcome to Parallel Worlds Audio Issue 2, October 2019. Word for word, the articles that appear in this month's Parallel Worlds magazine. Hello and welcome to Parallel Worlds Issue 2. A sequel is always tricky if the first instalment has been a runaway success. At the time of writing, I have no idea whether that's been the case, but certainly in all the time I've been writing about hobbies, events, books, computer games and the like, I've never felt as good as I do when I see the amazing treatment that writing gets from the Sagittarius I team, and now the Parallel Worlds team. Gradually, this magazine is finding its feet and its voice. We're a pretty eclectic mix of commentary on all things related to gaming, movies, television and books. We won't ever claim to cover the length and breadth of material being produced in the United Kingdom, the United States and the rest of the world, but we do try to take a deep dive into the mix and pick out a few things that might interest you. In this issue, we've the return of what will be our regular staples, discussing hot projects on Kickstarter, reviewing our book and board game of choice, and discussing the goings-on at Worldcon 2019, which took place in Dublin on the 14th and 19th of August. We've also taken a look at Dark, a German science fiction series available on Netflix, another miniature of the month, and an original short story provided for your enjoyment. In this issue, there's something of a theme about knowing your roots. Both version control and keeping track try to offer an informed take on where we've come from as fans of role-playing games and science fiction television. For some of us, this background knowledge is well known, but plenty of new players and fans don't necessarily know that much about the media that have inspired and set the benchmark for what we have today. Now, as the nights grow colder and the leaves fall from the trees and the scorching summer fades into memory, hopefully you can huddle under the duvet with our little magazine for company. Going forward, we're keen to get your feedback on our articles and features. Please do spend a bit of time on the website to let us know what you think about our work. We're always keen to improve and listen to constructive criticism. Until next time! Interview, Adrian Tchaikovsky Every month, Parallel Worlds will feature an interview with an amazing content creator or personality working in science fiction, fantasy or horror. This month, we caught up with award-winning author Adrian Tchaikovsky, best known for his Shadows of the Apt epic fantasy series and his Clark winning science fiction novel Children of Time. Adrian grew up on David Attenborough documentaries. He credits them with having a huge influence on his work and his focus on the natural world. Many of his books feature non-human elements, from Kinden in his earlier Shadows of the Apt novels to the animal elements in Echoes of the Fall and Dogs of War, to spiders and octopuses in the Children of Time series. These handily make for both metaphors as well as a compelling story. I used to say it was all tied up with Kafka and Pelevin and the tradition of using insects to highlight human characteristics, Adrian began, mostly to cover up the fact that I just really, really like insects and spiders and most other things that most people don't like. Spiders, particularly, feature prominently in Children of Time, arguably his most famous book. He explains that, at its heart, the story mainly deals with empathy for the other. Spiders are the ultimate other, he says, and so they make a useful vessel for telling a story about the need to overcome differences. Adrian's work often has elements of horror. Some have described it as grimdark, or dark fantasy, despite ostensibly falling into the fantasy and science fiction genres. 
For me, at a nuts and bolts level, it comes down to how anchored a particular project is in reality, he explains. When I'm doing what I consider hard science fiction, like Children of Time, it means I work with the science as I best understand it. Research, consult, and try to ensure that everything in the book, at least, isn't openly contradicting the current understanding in the field. He explained that this loosens up as one moves from science fiction to science fantasy, on to fantasy, and then high magic fantasy, where, in his words, consistency takes up the slack from reality. In short, whether it be fantastic technology or magic, it's more a matter of working out a consistent framework for what it can do, rather than knowing how it does it. A number of Adrian's works have been published by Tor and Pan Macmillan, B has also had work published by Head of Zeus, Solaris, and a variety of other publishers. There is a definite small press community in the UK, which is very friendly and welcoming, so you feel more personally involved in the business, he said. Sequels to existing works naturally go to the publisher of the original, while other projects may go out for tender. According to Adrian, some are just a perfect fit for certain publishers based on length or style. The main factor in determining which publishing house takes on a project is length, as no large publisher has yet published his short fiction. Adrian now writes full-time. While he relishes this, he does miss the social side of work. Social media does step up to the plate a bit, he says. His hometown of Leeds has a thriving writing community, who he meets up with too. He loves role-playing games, and has played in many different groups, though he says he's usually the game master these days. I'm often the driving force in getting a group together or introducing new players, he explained. He tends to default to Dungeons & Dragons 5th edition, covered elsewhere in this issue, due to its ease to teach and learn, although he is currently trying to get a game of legacy Life Amongst the Ruins going. It looks fascinating. It's a game that focuses on the long-term story of factions and groups, rather than individual characters, he said. Games are clearly important to him. Shadows of the Apt arose out of a role-playing game I ran at university, which left me with a very fleshed-out world to work with when I finally got around to writing it, he revealed. In addition, Spiderlight explores fictional takes on morality in a very Dungeons & Dragons-feeling world, and Walking to Aldebaran and Doors of Eden feature explicit mentions of specific games as well. As for video games... World of Warcraft has always been Adrian's mainstay. I've played at a variety of levels depending on how much time I have, he said. He tends to pick up and put down roguelike games when he has time too, such as Nuclear Throne, Risk of Rain 2 and Dicey Dungeons. He reads widely in the genres in which he works as well. When we caught up with him, he had just finished Beneath the Rising an upcoming horror-slash-science-fiction from a new writer called Primi Mohammed. Before that, he read Gareth Powell's Fleet of Knives and Aliette de Bodard's House of Sundering Flames. He praises both. Of all the characters he's written, Doctors Cat and Fisher from Redemption's Blade are Adrian's favourites. They were such ridiculous fun to write, he explained. A pair of academic rogues, one of whom talks far too much and gets himself in no end of trouble that his luckless cohort has to dig him out of. His next book is Doors of Eden. It's a bit of a tangent for me, he remarks. A big story, mostly set in the real world, modern day, 
except for all the bits about alternate timelines and evolution. The sequel to Dogs of War is undergoing final edits at present, and several novellas are due to be published by Solaris and Tor.com shortly, including one later this year. Made Things is set to be a a fantasy thieves guild story, whilst also being a fantasy emergent AI story, he said. Creepy little puppet larcenists, basically. We look forward to it. Review. Star Wars Outer Rim. I know and you know, there are a lot of Star Wars licensed games out there in the void. Some have become the stuff of legend, while others have had their light extinguished from the galaxy. It's just like how some of the characters in the series are icons in the science fiction oeuvre, while others... Deserving to be so forgot quickly, okay <coughs> Star Wars Outer Rim challenges you to make your character a legend. The aim of the game is to complete adventures, jobs, challenges and space battles to increase your fame and be the most adored or vilified scoundrel in the universe. And scoundrel is the key word, as Star Wars Outer Rim is firmly set in that part of the Star Wars mythos that deals with smuggling, bounty hunting, scams and faction loyalties. There are no light side Luke or Leia figures here. Your character choices are Han Solo, Lando Calrissian, Boba Fett, IG-88, Bosk, Dr. Aphra, Jin Erso and Ketsu Onyo. There's a definite focus on the cooler elements of the franchise here. How do you go about becoming a legend? It's entirely up to you. That's where Star Wars Outer Rim is possibly the best Star Wars experience I've had as a tabletop gamer. It's a complete sandbox. Travel where you like, pick up the jobs you want, hire the crew you want, take on bounties, smuggling or faction jobs, all while juggling a tense relationship with the Alliance, Huts, Syndicate and the Empire. The board and components are deceptively daunting. There's a lot of stuff on the table, but play is incredibly smooth. Your turn consists of choosing to move or stay put to gain credits and repairs. Then, if you're at a planet, you can pick up a card from the choice of jobs, bounties, equipment, cargo or ships, and then lastly, choose an encounter. Encounters come in several forms. They can be characters from the whole saga you can meet, either to recruit as crew or kill or capture for the bounty, they can be story encounter decks for each planet, or they can be a mission to take out one of the faction's patrolling ships to gain riches and fame, but earn you a negative reputation in the process. It feels like an incredibly generous game, not only in the wealth of choice on every turn, but the sheer amount of brilliant Star Wars content. You can buy your way through a series of ships, each of which have their own quests to complete for fame. You might buy yourself a YT-1300 light freighter, but only completing a noteworthy mission will earn it the name of Millennium Falcon along with fame for its pilot. While some of the jobs are standard courier jobs with a skill check, there are a number of multi-part jobs which are a steep challenge if you don't have a crew with varied skills. Remember seeing the Kessel Run play out in the movie Solo? No, I haven't either, but I'm assured that the Kessel Run job in Star Wars Outer Rim is very faithful to the events of the movie. Each part of the heist requires different skill checks, from piloting to stealth to knowledge. Star Wars Outer Rim races along from turn one with a definite sense of purpose. Some have compared it to the Fallout board game, but I disagree for this reason. I didn't enjoy Fallout because there was a lot of stuff to interact with and keep you busy, but it was aimless and felt like wandering around until something interesting happened. However, in Star Wars Outer Rim, your character begins with an individual job to complete. Immediately, you know where you are heading and why. Along the way, you will likely discover other opportunities and maybe choose a different direction, but there's no point in the game where you aren't clear on what you can do in order to make progress. It's not quite perfect. In a four-player game, the downtime between turns can be excruciating, especially when players have bigger encounters. 
It's a game where players need to read every encounter out loud simply to keep the table involved in the involving story. Also, the bounty hunting is a bit of a crapshoot. As a bounty hunter character, your initial target is one of any number of face-down characters located anywhere across the board. In one game, you might get lucky and find and capture your first target on your first turn. In another, you can spend hours trawling planets to find that by the time you've located your target, the mission rewards are of a scale more like pocket change in comparison to your current status. It's also a long game. That's neither criticism nor praise, as it's never dull, it just takes a long time to play to completion, especially with more players, and that's important to bear in mind. However, with fame points being fairly slow to acquire, it still seems fairly balanced if you decide to set a lower victory target. There's also a very credible solo AI component, should you have an afternoon free and want to play Choose Your Own Adventure on an epic scale. Between juggling alliances, dodging patrol ships, and mixing ship-to-ship and blaster-to-blaster combat, Star Wars Outer Rim delivers one of the best Star Wars gaming experiences I've ever had. Even with its rough edges, it's an incredibly satisfying game. Box Half Full why Dungeons & Dragons is so popular. In the first issue of Parallel Worlds, we made the case that Dungeons & Dragons is overly combat-focused and ought to become less combat-heavy. This month, we present another perspective on the world's most famous tabletop role-playing game. My colleague is correct in his observations about Dungeons & Dragons 5th edition, released in 2014. Like its predecessors, it's a game centred around mechanics-focused violence. Some players may see it as a knockoff of today's violence-based video games, while others recognise or remember that the inspiration originally went the other way round. Today's world has changed enormously since the 70s when D&D came into being. Around the globe, wars and violence have decreased. Greater peace and prosperity has promoted more nuanced ways of problem-solving. The global economy is faster-paced and more interconnected than ever before. Former enemies can be current trading partners. Information that used to require hours of painstaking research can now be retrieved with a few clicks. For all the current rise of nationalist movements in Europe and the Americas, our planet is as far from the conflict-ridden low-tech worlds of D&D as it's ever been. So why do we need a game that's at its core a clunky, rules-heavy narrative of a bunch of demigods ramming their fists against progressively bigger and badder monsters? Why do we cling to a game whose rulebook has an entire chapter simply on the mechanics of combat, with comparatively little emphasis on more peaceful or clever ways of solving problems? We live in a time when many of our old institutions are seen as broken and disinterested in the welfare of the people they serve. Many people, young and old, chant that we ought to burn it all down and start again. However, for all that we find frustrating and out of touch about the past, there's a value in shared history and traditional storytelling. The hovering, riddle-eyed body of the beholder, the Cthulhu-like horror of the mind flayers, the classic fantasy trio of dwarf-elf-halfling. These are familiar images that go back decades into our cultural memory, or even longer. The legendary Tolkien universe, for example, has inspired much of the entire fantasy genre, including D&D. Many older tabletop role-players, often though not always white men, 
See a lot that they remember from the 70s and 80s in today's updated D&D, and this allows them to share their experiences with younger generations. There's a power in intergenerational storytelling that should not be discounted. One would think that a progressive perspective on character diversity and representation would be at odds with my first point about tradition and nostalgia. But the fifth edition makes it work. Lead rules designer of Wizards of the Coast, Jeremy Crawford, has led the team in making D&D more diverse and queer-friendly in a number of ways. First, the player's handbook explicitly states that you don't need to be confined to binary notions of sex and gender. Likewise, your character's sexual orientation is for you to decide. It's a low-key but important gesture of invitation to members of the queer community. Published adventures include queer characters, and Crawford has pledged to continue this inclusion moving forward. Wizards of the Coast has also gone out of its way to promote queer content creators who broadcast on Twitch and other platforms, leading to an explosion in queer participation in the game. Second, the sexist fan service of previous editions has gone the way of the dinosaur. Rulebooks and sourcebooks are full of beautiful illustrations and practically none of them are of sexy-looking women in skimpy clothes. Even some of the monster designs have been reworked. The femme fatale trope of the alluring succubus is now complemented by a male version, the incubus. And many traditionally scantily clad female monsters, such as the Erinies, have been illustrated fully clothed or armoured. Even the harpy, a creature that relies on its feminine sexuality to draw in prey, is drawn in a way that preserves its modesty. The classically over-sexualized nymph has been eliminated entirely from the game. The fantasy genre and the gaming industry as a whole has a long history of objectifying women, but 5th edition has made enormous strides in turning that around. You can, of course, still play a hot woman in a chainmail bikini, but only if you choose to, and the artwork of the books no longer objectifies women in the way it once did. The clarity of the visuals and their alliance with storytelling draws something from D&D's legacy of miniatures. The clean, almost photographic quality action poses are a clear design choice, the responsibility of Kate Irwin, the senior art director. As a young man myself, I find these changes to be tremendously liberating and welcoming to people from all walks of life. My personal gaming group is majority female and majority queer, and around a lot of tables now, that's the norm. While 5th edition is a relatively complex rule system compared to some other games, it is far simpler than it used to be, with more of an emphasis on story. After the lacklustre reception of the 4th edition of the game, Wizards of the Coast did a fantastic job of collecting player feedback and recruiting fans to help create this version. The playtest process, known as D&D Next, went on for an extended period of time, while Wizards of the Coast drew on feedback to dramatically reduce the scope of the rules and simplify combat. As a result, the abilities and other important stats of most non-spellcaster characters can be summed up in a single-page character sheet. Simplicity is the order of the day for 5th edition. A good contrast is Pathfinder, D&D's best-known spin-off and rival. 
In many ways, Pathfinder occupies ground that D&D has abandoned. Pathfinder's roots lie in 3rd edition D&D. Its new 2nd edition, released in 2019, is detailed and dense, the rules more bent towards simulation than D&D's storytelling focus and lighter touch. Pathfinder is filled with complex rules for building characters and playing them in adventures that almost require the use of a battle map and complex multi-page character sheets filled with essential details. Pathfinder is a fun and engaging game with millions of players across the world. However, many players prefer a rule set that is simpler, but still has enough depth to make interesting and unique character choices. Sales prove there's definitely a market for both. Now we come to the crux of my colleague's critique that D&D is, at its heart, a war game. For the most part, problems and challenges are met with violent solutions that turn into a series of contested roles. This is undeniably true. It is also not a problem. As they say in the programming world, it's not a bug, it's a feature. For all its fantastic embellishment, the violence endemic to D&D is authentic to the European medieval era, which inspired most classic fantasy settings. For most of human history, global average life expectancy hovered at an average age of around three decades. This was not only the result of poor hygiene and infant mortality, but also due to very high rates of violent death. In medieval England, the average homicide level was at least ten times higher than it is today, not to mention the risks of war and genocide. For most of humanity's history, life was, in the words of Thomas Hobbes, solitary, poor, nasty, brutish, and short. D&D can serve as a way to revisit the brutal danger of our species' past, with some added fantastic monsters for a little extra joie de vivre. We may be glad we don't live in those times, but it can be fun and cathartic to revisit them, with a few trusty companions and the aid of supernatural abilities. So what is 5th edition Dungeons & Dragons? It's a classic game, updated for the present day. It brings with it a solid, simplified rule set, a healthy dose of traditional content, a number of powerful storytelling tropes, and open arms for diversity. That said, many of my colleagues' critiques of the 5th edition are valid. At times, players do stick religiously to published rules, despite the rules themselves repeatedly encouraging them to take liberties when it makes the game more fun. Many players don't know those rules intimately, and try to force their game into a less enjoyable template. Still, so what? Yes, There is value in stepping away from war games and telling less restrictive stories, but that's not to say that D&D isn't also a valuable experience. It's easy to understand, it's fairly simple to play, and it envisions a world that's quite familiar to most players. Besides, just because players of a game may have unimaginative and uninspired sessions doesn't mean that the game itself is unimaginative. D&D's non-combat rules may be less emphasised, but that's not to say that players can't tell almost any kind of story they want to, often without having to work against the system. On the contrary, the internet is full of players recounting amazing stories they shared with their friends at the gaming table, with 5th edition. As for those who prefer to stick to old-fashioned, uninspired dungeon crawling, more power to them. 
Not everyone wants to change up the formula, and if there's anything we escapists ought to have tolerance for, it's how others choose to express their escapism. Is it worth leaving the cul-de-sac of D&D to explore other different games? Of course. Just as there's value in exploring all the various genres of literature, so too there's learning and inspiration to be had from exploring all manner of games. Try out simpler and different games like Into the Odd and Ars Magica, mentioned in my colleague's piece. Explore more complex systems like Pathfinder. You can even split from fantasy settings altogether and look at games like Call of Cthulhu or Monster of the Week. All of these games offer unique and valuable storytelling opportunities. Still, D&D is a big, functional and clearly enjoyable cul-de-sac, as cul-de-sacs go. Its world is vast and it has room for all kinds of players, from the old-school dungeon crawlers with their pen and paper character sheets to the young people with their electronic sheets from the emerging website D&D Beyond. Let's give D&D, and the many millions of people who love it, a bit of grace. Mini of the Month, Uthred Steel Mantle I remember the before time, when snow did not touch the low valleys, and the sun still shone with pure and righteous fire. It was not this weak, wan caress that barely touches my spirit. No matter now. There is a new light, a new fire, and it burns within me as surely as lightning in a far distant storm cloud. They called me Uth then, when they noticed me at all. Bastard son of a skald, limbs twisted by the Ravager curse. What hope did I have of making a name for myself? I could not run, could not hold an axe or brace a shield. There were even some among the third who pushed for the old ways to see me left on the hillside for the wolves. But Lady Haldra had other plans. She saw my clever hands and dark, serious eyes. I was taken from the feared hall and put amongst the weavers and washers. And there I made such beautiful things in the company of those who did not scorn me for my weakness. But it was not to last. Verminous and merciless, Raiders from the western plains stormed the hills and put us to the torch. The feared were routed and slaughtered like sheep, and the rest of us taken as slaves to our conquerors. The raider chieftain had lofty ideals, and recognised my skills. He bade me make him a great tapestry of his deeds, forcing me to commemorate the slaughter of my people to sate his own arrogance. I wept as I wove the threads, knowing that my weakness left me utterly powerless. Unless... At last I finished my labours, and a great feast took place where I presented the bastard chieftain with his tapestry. He hung it above his throne as he laughed at my suffering, then drank himself into a merry stupor. When all the hall was quiet, and my fellow slaves had been thrashed back to their quarters, I crept out with murder in my heart. Returning to the hall, I took up a long carving knife, and limped up to where the chieftain sat, still sotted with drink. With a savage, clumsy strike, I thrust the knife through his eye with such force it pinned his head to the throne behind him. He thrashed once and lashed out, by pure instinct alone, with the fell axe he held by his side. It bit deep into my flank, and I perished next to him on the cold stone floor. Now the Stormfather has remade me 
whole in body and resolute in purpose. I shall find the source of this accursed cold and end it in the name of those I loved. And then, perhaps, I shall know peace. Ruling the World In Babylon 5, Earth Dome controls the planet. In The Expanse, the United Nations rules the Earth. Star Trek's United Federation of Planets rules civilizations spanning many worlds, as does the hegemony of man in Dan Simmons' Hyperion. We seem to accept and expect the idea of countries will one day disappear, but how might this come about? A global or civilization-wide government is a mainstay of classic science fiction. The idea that, as mankind's borders recede into the cosmos, Earth will become a single administrative entity seems oddly intuitive. But Earth today is an anarchy of sovereign states, few of which seem eager to cede their autonomy to a supernational body. From where we're standing, it is far from obvious how government Earth might come to pass. Earth currently hosts 195 countries, defined as territories with their own borders and total sovereignty over the area as well as the population they enclose. No one country, in theory, can exercise legitimate control over any other. Internationally, the situation is anarchy. There are supranational bodies, like NATO, but these tend to be either practically toothless or limited in scope, for example a free trade area or mutual defence agreement. So how likely is Government Earth? What about a future in which space expansion leads to even more independent nations? For example, there could soon be a nation of the Moon or Mars. It is easy to imagine an Asimovian scenario in which second-generation settlers on those worlds begin to resent the shackles of Mother Earth and agitate for autonomy. As Asimov suggests in The Gods Themselves, it might only take one baby to be born in a colony for thoughts of self-determination to rise in a previously quiescent population of scientists. There is historical precedent for this in colonialism. Would the Nation of the Moon, the Republic of the Asteroid Belt, or the Federation of Mars join the United Nations, I wonder? Another option might be for the countries as we know them today to persist into the future, as humanity's borders expand. In the Commonwealth Saga by Peter F. Hamilton, the nations of Earth use wormhole technology to claim new planets far away, such as a planet called the Democratic Republic of New Germany. Potentially, these colonies could be founded as scientific outposts from the mother country. But rather than treated as vassal territory, they might be embraced and represented as a core part of the nation itself, perhaps even playing host to the state centre of government. This option necessarily means that geography is decoupled from the concept of the state. Something called Finland could mean both a small bit of land on the northern hemisphere of Earth, as well as a planet orbiting Alpha Centauri. It is interesting to wonder what the term country might mean in those circumstances. The third option might be called a mega-united nations, the voluntary, unanimous establishment of a supernational governing body ruling planet Earth, relegating countries as we know them today to something like the states in the federal system. The UN is probably the closest thing that Earth has to a global government, and does have an armed peacekeeping force called the Blue Helmets, but its power derives from collective assent and therefore disappears as soon as unanimity is lost among the five-member Security Council. The UN itself was created in 1945 at a unique moment in world history. The Second World War had just ended. 
This had happened a mere couple of decades after the first one, and had seen the world's first deployment of weapons capable of levelling entire cities. Many governments worldwide, for the first time in the history of our species, decided that the stakes were now too high, and the cost too great for nationalism. It was time for something above nations to keep the peace between them. The fact that, after half a century of the bloodiest warfare and greatest loss of life the world had ever seen, the UN was the only result, is evidence enough that countries are a sticky idea. Over the decades since, as the depredations of the Second World War have slowly turned from memory to history, nationalism has grown again. Any governing body needs the support of the governed to exist, and humans seem to be much more loyal to the idea of the geography and culturally defined nation-state than they are to a rootless union. Indeed, the UN is not at present viewed with enthusiasm by the most powerful and populous nations of Earth, most of whom have become stridently nationalistic in recent years. It is difficult to imagine a revanchist Russia, for example, agreeing to be bound by the diktats of an international body, or China's increasing economic muscle submitting to be subject to rules it only helped to write. Even America, the architect of the current international rules-based order, seems to resent its role as an arbiter of that system, a position many countries view as a gross privilege. With many countries currently racing to gain a stake in space, if anything, their national identities and pride in their sovereignty seem to be growing. And this could possibly lead to the fourth option, hegemony. It is conceivable that, if the United States had retained the political will to dominate space throughout the 70s, 80s and 90s, their lead today in the final frontier might have been unassailable. The Star Wars program of missile defence, coupled with the permanent outpost in space, might have led to a dominance of the Earth's skies that, while not technically a global government, would yield enough influence and power that it might as well be. A state with the resources and the will to exploit the first mover's advantage in space could become so influential and dominant that it could dictate terms without risk of a hot conflict. Arguably, this chance has now been lost. The list of states attempting ambitious missions in space is growing, and private enterprise appears to be dictating the pace of change. The fifth option, and perhaps the most obvious, is empire the forced union of previously autonomous territories by one expansionist power. In other words, another world war. Historically, the largest areas under a single government have been empires. Empires have two practical benefits in terms of governing large tracts of territory. One, by nature they are not paralysed by the disparate wants of their composite countries. And two, the means by which they are established becomes the method for their control and administration. Armies are effective at keeping populations pliable, and military infrastructure can translate smoothly to civil government infrastructure. The Roman Empire was established by superior armed force, and the presence of that same armed force, with the continent-spanning communication networks and infrastructure it brought, helped sustain the empire in peacetime. But warfare today isn't like that. In the nuclear age, countries are like people standing waist-deep in petrol, each holding a lit match. The odds of another world war that leaves anything left to govern seem slim. How big could a single state be? The largest empire in history was the British one, which spanned about a quarter of the globe at its height in the early 20th century. The upper limit to the size of a state is probably a function of technology. How quickly can a message be sent from the centre to the outlying regions? Better technology allows for distances to shrink, 
With globalization, it is common to hear people talk about the world getting smaller. In a real way, places are not separated by distance, they are separated by time, the time it takes for a message to travel. It is conceivable that, if communication between the outlying reaches of a state and its administrative centre was quick and rich, a single country could be very large indeed. Larger than a planet, perhaps? Probably not. Electronic communication and satellites may have allowed us to send messages across our own planet in the blink of an eye, but at present our understanding of nature suggests that the speed of light might be a real hard limit on the speed of communication. If so, the absolute fastest a message could reach a planet orbiting our closest neighbour star would be more than four years. It seems unlikely that a colony on a world orbiting Alpha Centauri would not decide to govern themselves rather than wait on long orders from Earth. A country is something defined on a map. A nation is a body of people with a shared sense of cultural identity. When the borders of these two do not align, tension and strife ensue. The reason countries exist in the forms they do, by and large, is because their geography and circumstances permit unified control. When this ceases to be the case, due to distance, geography, war or culture, countries tend to cease to exist, split into parts, or otherwise remain unstable and difficult to govern. This is probably because of the fundamental nature of humans. We are naturally governable, under certain circumstances, due to our collective psychological characteristics. To illustrate simply, it may be possible to govern X number of people if you can get a message across territory in Y time, and the people in question share Z cultural characteristics. As long as humans as a collective entity behave recognisably, we can assume that countries will emerge according to shared culture and administrative practicality into the future. So how likely is it that the fate of humanity is to be unified under a single government? For what it's worth, my bet is probably for option one. Government Earth is only likely to arise by conquest, or after an incredibly destructive war. If neither of these comes to pass, what we are more likely to see is the status quo writ large, a cornucopia of nations divided and defined by whatever geography they find themselves in, scattered amongst the stars. Version Control. Which editions should you play? Role-playing games, tabletop war games, video games and board games have come a long way since their experimental inception in the 1960s and 1970s. In many ways, it's hard to remember that these different types of game originally drew inspiration from some of the same source material. The fifth edition of Dungeons & Dragons, known as 5e, was released in 2014 and is now well established as being the most popular role-playing game in the world. In role-playing games, Call of Cthulhu is in its seventh edition, the generic universal role-playing system, or GURPS, is in its fourth edition, Pathfinder is in its second edition, and Vampire the Masquerade is in its fifth edition. In war games... Warhammer 40,000 is the world's most popular. The 8th edition of the rules was released in 2017, replacing the 7th edition, which lasted only three years. X-Wing is in its 2nd edition, and then you have Bolt Action, War Machine and Star Wars Legion, amongst many others. In board games, new edition mean new boxed sets. 
Only the most popular tend to survive. Some get resurrected and revised from antiquity by companies like Fantasy Flight Games, whereas others can be redesigned to incorporate a theme or licensed brand. With each iteration comes a new release of supplements or expansions to accompany the new core rulebooks. Usually, as part of the tradition of role-playing in war games, the core books are gorgeous hardbacks, replete with page after page of wonderful full-colour illustrations. But as electronic devices have become more portable, PDFs and other quick-guide formats have become more popular. This, in turn, has driven down the price for consumers, who have vast libraries of content to draw from, for their war games or role-playing nights. With Warhammer 40,000, the first edition of the rules was very much driven by the sculpts that were available. Warhammer, Rogue Trader, released in 1987, was a bit of a hybrid, trying to be a role-playing game while actually providing a coherent game system for the array of different lead sculpts being produced at Citadel Miniatures. Gradually, the game found its niche, and Games Workshop turned away from role-playing games. It was to return to this arena later with a dedicated set of books produced under licence by a variety of partners who each created a different version of rules and source materials. The innovations in multi-part sculpted plastics and mass production of sprues at 25 and 28 millimetres has also allowed gamers to expand their collection of miniatures. So whether you're putting an army together for a battle or just building up a bestiary or adversary box for your adventure modules, there's plenty of options to find what you need for your game. Sources for miniatures have expanded even further to include an array of board games too, often funded by Kickstarters, as they look to deliver a bulging, oversized box full of imaginative fun. New editions of board games have certainly looked to jump on board this particular aspect of cheaper and better quality production. Some of the spaceship designs in games like Firefly and Battlestar Galactica are excellent. Star Wars Rebel Assault, Dark Souls... War of the Ring, Deep Madness and many others provide the same modelling and painting opportunities for hobbyists, as war games do. The compatibility of these miniatures is often pretty good too, which means model enthusiasts can spend a lot of time kitbashing or converting miniatures to create a particular character for an army list or special figure for a role-playing game. Nidatite, or green stuff, an epoxy putty that can be moulded to fill in gaps, add cloaks or replace items, allows for some excellent interpretations, as does a careful use of plasticard to make vehicles and alternative weapons. With the innovation of 3D printing, scenery for games is being produced in a variety of different ways, with lots of opportunities for small businesses to start up and produce great stuff for gamers too. However, there are some boundaries between ranges that have become more pronounced as the commercial markets for these products have become more and more popular. Many companies run successful commercial tournaments with regional, national and international championships held at conventions all across the world. To ensure fair play, these tourneys often insist on the use of miniatures that are sourced from the company whose game you're playing. So for a Warhammer 40,000 tournament game, you can't field some space elves from another range, no matter how well you painted them. Similarly, tournament play tends to involve using the latest edition of the rules. This was a particularly difficult transition for players of X-Wing, the first edition of which was a massive commercial success. The game rules had always been included in the boxes, so the release of version 2 rules meant issuing conversion guides for existing models in the new release boxes. 
This kind of additive wargame means you might need to hunt down a lot of material to create a framework for a tournament game. During Warhammer's fantasy incarnations, Warhammer Fantasy Battle and Age of Sigmar, there was a significant setting change. Warhammer Fantasy miniatures are still compatible with Age of Sigmar, but a variety of new creatures have been introduced and Games Workshop products have undergone a subtle transformation, with each army type being renamed to something the company can trademark or brand. This process has extended to Warhammer 40,002 with Imperial Guard, now known as Astro Militarium, and Eldar becoming Eldari. There is some inevitable rules inflation. New army lists are produced that escalate the power level of weapons and armour on the table. New editions of the rules tend to rebalance this each time, but then another set of miniatures and vehicles comes out, and so on, and so on. There are two main agendas which drive the continuous cycle of new features and new additions in many of these brands. The first is the economic agenda. These companies need to produce products that their players will buy and use. The second is the perfectionist agenda, the idea that a rule system can be improved, made better, faster or more immersive. Many companies see both of these agendas as complementary. Revising the core rules and giving them an update allows for new ideas from the supplements to be incorporated into the heart of the game. Dungeons & Dragons was certainly a beneficiary of this, as the player base expanded with a variety of ideas coming from player suggestions and new designers coming in with their own interpretations. 3rd edition and 5th edition are incredibly popular game systems. 3rd edition spawned a variety of conversion games with D20 Modern an open rule system used by a variety of different designers to translate different fictional properties into role-playing games. Dungeons & Dragons had a massive user base who were already familiar with the rules. New game settings could be plug-and-play for gaming groups without anyone needing to learn too many new rules, or even portal visits for particularly adventurous multi-world campaigns. Games like GURPS, had already broken some of this ground with a variety of properties licensed and converted to run under the GURPS rules. But D20 Modern reached a lot more players. With an expansion of potential settings for games, players could learn just one system and play in many different settings. But even then, the rules needed to be revisited with a 4th and then 5th edition of Dungeons & Dragons being produced. Now, 5th edition stands in a similar place to 3rd edition, with an open licence version available on the internet and a variety of franchise role-playing games coming out that'll use it. But is this version of the rules better? Perhaps. But fundamentally, the perfectionist agenda can be a relative point. All of these games are about creating an experience and having fun with people you choose to play with. The quest for the perfect game is really about your perfect game, not replacing the pretty book on your shelf. Role-playing games in particular are vehicles for storytelling in a group. The rules are there to create that experience. When they get in the way, they might need a tweak or two, But that doesn't mean throwing everything out and starting again. It does mean finding the best solution for your group. Sometimes the best solution is rooted in nostalgia. Computer games like RuneScape by Jagex 
evolved through a long period, but RuneScape Classic remained popular for 17 years before closing in 2017. Blizzard, producers of World of Warcraft, recently released a classic version of that game using the same aesthetic and controls as the original 2004 version. Star Wars Galaxies ran from 2003, and before the servers were shut down in 2011, players got together to form the group SWGEMU. They wrote unique code to set up an emulated server which neatly bypassed the intellectual property issues that may have arisen if they just set up an alternative hosting when the game shut down. Additionally, sometimes an adventure supplement isn't available for your current rules edition. In the role-playing game Call of Cthulhu, the excellent campaign Beyond the Mountains of Madness was released for the fifth edition of the rules. The print version of the supplement is very rare, but Chaosium still sell the PDF. To make it work with the sixth or seventh edition, the campaign will require a couple of tweaks anyway, as well as some familiarity with Lovecraft's eponymous story, upon which it's based. Homebrewing rules might have seemed a bit niche a few years ago, but now everyone's doing it, particularly with smaller game systems. Improvements in desktop publishing and print-on-demand services mean anyone can produce something of high quality for their own use if they want to. The website Board Game Geek was founded in 2000. It's always been a haven for players, designers and modders. The forums are a great place to discuss playing games and home-ruling anything that doesn't quite work for your players. There's also a discussion on creating beautiful home-produced versions of old games, like the 1979 titles Magic Realm or Dune from Avalon Hill, and other out-of-print products. Sharing content on social media groups helps keep people's games rich, relevant and interesting. There's an interesting tension between producing that kind of free content and waiting for the official versions produced by the brand owners. Games need to be played to stay relevant, but as mentioned earlier, they need to develop, release and sell content to stay profitable. Retaining customers and fans is about balancing these requirements. The second-hand market is also a vibrant place to find great games. Conventions often run a bring-and-buy, which can give you a chance to pick up a bargain. Massive, epic board games like Twilight Imperium and Axis and Allies have multiple editions that remain relevant. Twilight Imperium's newest fourth edition is an excellent game, but many people have taken advantage of its release to pick up a copy of its third edition on the cheap, second-hand. Meanwhile, Axis and Allies has a multitude of different versions that are still up on the shelves in game shops. These can be focused on Europe, the Pacific, the First World War, or even incorporate zombies into your game. For games masters and players, the important thing is that everyone enjoys themselves. So if you want to get into playing a game and have a good time, don't feel you have to run with the latest version of anything. A great gaming experience depends as much on the players you invite as it does on the version of the game you play. Beneath the Waystation Akaya is not a forgiving world. The equator is marred by a sheen of dead off-white, a great plain of salt from an ocean boiled into nothingness. The poles are heavily forested with thick, calamitous jungles, and everything between those two extremes is red, unyielding rock and dry yellow grass. Water would be worth more than gold if Achaeans gave a damn about yellow lead. 
Skip's look was the exception to that rule. Wiry and silver-haired, he crouched behind the lip of an outcrop, battered optics pointed at his target. The waystation huddled between two great boulders that leaned against each other drunkenly, their red hides fading to orange where the sun scoured them day after day. The heat was truly merciless here, scant miles from the northmost tip of the Great Plains. There was no other civilization for hundreds of miles in any direction. The utter barren bleakness was enough to deter many would-be explorers and thieves. But Skip's Luke was no ordinary thief. Do you see any guards? Moog was younger than Skip's by a good dozen years and a great deal stockier. No better man to have at your back, Skip's would always say. Moog would always laugh and change the subject. Nah, I don't. Don't mean there ain't any, though. Skips chewed the inside of his cheek thoughtfully. There's gotta be. You said they was keeping something mighty pricey in there, right? Moog gingerly clambered up alongside Skips, trying his damnedest to stay hidden. Skips shuffled aside to give him room and nodded. Aye, something so pricey, in fact, they didn't dare say what it was on the comms. Oh, shit, Skips. You're saying we don't even know what we're stealing? Look, Moj, it's Scarthagen. And what do I always say about Scarthagen? They got too much money and they use it to buy peace and make war out of it. You say that every bloody time. Aye, and when have I been wrong? First time for everything, Skips. Moog held out a hand for the optics. Skips passed them and began to slide carefully down the rear of the outcrop. Moog lingered for a moment longer, trying to scope out whatever the way station might be hiding. It was to no avail. Aye, pricey as hell, and guarded by isolation. Skip smiled. Nowhere was isolated when you had the right sort of friends. With help from some unscrupulous city folk from Lontar, they'd narrowed down the possible holding sites to three candidates. One had been abandoned for years, and the other destroyed by insurgency skirmishing. Thus, this one little way station hidden between the rocks had to hold the object of their desire. Now that Skips could see it up close, though, little wasn't the right word. Like all Scarthagen buildings, the waystation was sleek in a way that seemed pompous among the rust-blood-red Achaean sands. It was as if the building was turning up a non-existent nose at the thought of dirt befouling any part of it. And yet, dirt there was, and nothing else. The slow walk down the hill and through the scrub had left Moog slightly winded, and now his breathing filled the silence. The waystation had no bored, overpaid guards to sneak past. Didn't have any miserable, underpaid ones either. There was only the dust, the arrogant architecture, and the silence. Even the crunch of Skip's boots as he knelt made him wince. He drew a few tools from his belt and began hunting for a maintenance panel. Moog kept watch, still and silent. Skip's could feel the tension, the taut silence waiting to be shattered. The maintenance panel came free with a pop that might as well have been a gunshot. Skip squared his shoulders and leaned into the cavity, expecting the usual trial by a wire that was scarthogen security. Instead, he found a mess of shredded cables and ruined control consoles, splattered with dark stains, the source of which he cared not to dwell upon. Moj, something's wonky here. We might have a bit of a job on our hands. You're telling me, mate. I think we might have company. In all the years he'd worked with Moog, this was as close to fearful as Skips had ever heard him. Even during the operation when they were young men, with all the foibles of the young, 
Moog had been stoic as a rock. Skips pulled himself out of the cavity to see Moog staring back the way they'd come, rifle gripped firmly across his chest. He jumped when Skips laid a hand on his shoulder, but his eyes didn't leave the narrow defile at the end of the gully. I saw something move. Something too long. Long arms. Definitely not human. Skips blew out a heavy sigh and rubbed his temples. Can't go back now, mate. We'll be flat broke if we don't find any good gear for the insurgency. Probably just some scavenger thing looking for an easy meal amongst the rocks. Easy now, Moj. Moog stared for a moment longer, then nodded and lowered the rifle. It was an old thing, pre-colonial and rugged, with crude welded iron sights and a tendency to jam, but it could take most ammo types and was cheap to fix. If you weren't Scarthogen, you made do. With the controls shredded beyond use, the only way they could open the door was with brute strength. Skips and Moog put their shoulders to the sliding metal surface and heaved with all their might. It would have been easier five years ago. Hell, it would have been easy with one more man. But Skips had a legend to maintain. To travel light and work alone. To be daring, no matter the cost. As the rusted, grimy metal slowly groaned open, Skips cursed the day he'd ever grown a sense of adventure. The interior of the waystation was dank, dark, and grimier than the Soul City's sordid underbelly. It struck Skips that the facility had been completely abandoned for some reason. The wind peaked its howling again, and he fought off a shiver as he stepped inside. The smell of rust and rot filled his nose, and the once grand corridors echoed with footsteps he wished were quieter. The interior was scarthogen through and through. Sleek panels, spartan living for the menials, probably a cushy office for the executive. That and any armory would be their target. Weapons for the insurgency, the interesting stuff for fences in Soul City. It was a strategy that made for a decent living, if nearly dying counted as living. Skip smiled wryly at the thought as they crept through the passages, shoulder-mounted lumens showing the way. Past a cramped mess hall buzzing with flies, through a barracks filled with tossed sheets and unkempt beds all covered in dust, deeper into rot and gloom and abandonment, their nerves singing all the while. Every scampering wind-rat and flickering light pushed them closer to the edge of reason, and by the time they rounded a corner and came to thick blast doors with an inset keypad, both men were ready to cut and run at the drop of a hat. Right, this is it. Skips knelt in front of the control panel and pulled a few stained pieces of paper from a hidden pocket under his fatigues. The codes scribbled on them were worth a two-generation stay in the labor camps, if not outright execution. Scathogen had little patience for thieves. The door groaned open on half-ruined servers after the second attempt at entering the codes, and a waft of musty air spilled into the corridor. The room beyond defied Skip's expectations. It was festooned with thick, gnarled webbing of an origin he couldn't place. The finery of an executive office shrouded. Only the central desk was untouched, even by dust. A ring of clean floor surrounded it and made a mockery of time and wind, and there... Sitting innocuously on the desk was a silver... thing. Skips could only compare it to an undersized potato, but he'd never claimed to be a man of words. It shimmered in the lumen light composed of tightly locked silver strands. They looked almost like muscles, like those exposed in the flayed sand beasts mother would hang in the cooling shed behind a butcher's stand. As Skips stepped across the threshold of the dustless circle, he felt his skin prickle slightly. 
Moog stood watch at the doorway, and Skips could feel that disapproving look without turning to see. But that was the way of it. Gibbs played the big damn hero and took stupid risks. Moog watched his back and cleaned up the mess. The silver thing was cool in his hands, pleasantly so. Skips tucked it into a secure pocket and suddenly felt a patter of dust trickle down onto his forehead. Whatever the object could do, a sturdy set of preoccupation fatigues did a good enough job of blocking it. We should hit the armory and get the hell out. Moog's whisper was strained. The atmosphere was far from welcoming and Skips wasn't one to overstay his welcome. He nodded and turned to lead them down another level. But before he could, something caught his ear. A shift in air currents, perhaps. A skitter of movement too large to be a wind rat. Something was coming. He turned back to tell Moog. The corridor stretched empty behind him. With a sense of abject doom, Skips looked up. The thing on the ceiling was huge spindly and chitinous. In the low lumen light it appeared a similar shade of brown to the plagues of Chicada shells that littered the Badlands every few years. The mouthparts moved languidly as it ate its way through the last of Moog's head. He hadn't even had time to scream. The sounds were growing louder now, though still eerily muffled. Skips was running before the sight of Moog, headless and pierced by innumerable forelimbs could register properly. He sprinted back the way they'd come, worn boots slapping through the dust in his own ragged breathing, filling the corridors as he went, and all the while his careening thoughts rebounded from the single unyielding truth. Moog was dead. Their luck had run out. Scarthogen had made something truly terrible and left it to rot in the way station. It's going to get out. Skips knew what he had to do. That thing would wreak havoc if it got loose. He skidded to a stop, framed in a light from the open blast door. His hands shook as they pulled free a pair of metallic cylinders and tossed them to either corner. They began to beep rapidly in the half-light, red lights flashing from either end. Skips ran even faster now, heart beating as raggedly as his breathing. The sand gave beneath his feet just enough to tire him that little bit more and slow his strides. So when the twin cylinders exploded with the force of a small asteroid impact behind him, Skips was close enough to feel the edge of the shockwave jolt his insides and look back to see the plume of dust and smoke rise behind him. A few more steps and he began to feel wetness seeping down his back, a sort of cold numbness. He staggered to a halt. Blood spat at the sand below him as he breathed raggedly. His vision began to grow dark. Available now from the Radio Theatre Workshop. Elite. Lave Revolution. This is Lave, or Lave 1, to give the correct designation. You crash somewhere here. What do you know about Lave? Many independent systems are ruled by warlords and madmen. Lave was once one of the most important systems in the galaxy. In those days, every independent pilot worth their salt got a license from Lave. Lathe has been ruled by one man, Hans Walden, for nearly 100 years. Over a hundred years? The same man? Were you alive back then? They call him the Good Doctor. A rebellion forms on Lathe. You people need to respect us! Or is it a test? Everything is a test. Many of you aren't old enough to remember the Alioth Rebellion. I don't need heroes. 
I require diligence and duty. One of the most ambitious full-cast audio productions ever attempted by an independent studio. Captains, I require all vessels to be at combat-ready status within the hour. Featuring Toby Longworth and Beth Eyre, known for Star Wars and wooden overcoats. You aren't aware that the good doctor expects results. Wait, how Bowles, what are you doing? Now you understand how serious we are. A five-hour full-cast space opera from the creators of Escape Velocity. Multiple warships inbound, sir. I need your ugly ship and its escorts. Based on the official Elite Dangerous novel. I need your pilots, fighters and military expertise. Witness the revolution. In exchange, I offer you Glaive. Well done, Prefect. You're looking tired, my friend. Elite. Lave Revolution. Now available on digital download and custom USB edition from www.radiotheatreworkshop.com or search on your favourite audiobook distributor. Are you really doing your part for Lave's return to glory, citizen? Destiny 2 being five years late to the party. Bungie's massively multiplayer online MMO sci-fi shooter Destiny 2 might be the best sci-fi first-person shooter ever created. According to fans, it might even be the best sci-fi experience ever created, full stop. This certainly hasn't always been a widespread opinion, so what's changed? The new downloadable content Shadowkeep seems less like a standard expansion to Destiny 2 and more like a rebirth. The huge expansion takes us back to the moon, along with all the new items, missions and loot you'd expect. Many elements of the core game are being overhauled, and the base game becomes free to play with new light. Six months ago, I was reluctant to invest the £50 to get the base game and expansions to play with my friends. I'd heard very mixed things about Destiny. Five months ago, after around 30 hours of playing, I'd have said, it's okay, I guess. Now I'm typing an article encouraging you all to go and play it right now. Stop reading, go. So what changed? The original Destiny launched in 2014 to mixed reviews. The reductive phrase looter shooter is frequently bandied about in the gaming press, and there's been more than a little scorn in the past about the thin story, grindy gameplay, and numerous development problems. On the surface, and with a somewhat cynical eye, that's accurate. However, after five years of continual expansion and adjustments, Destiny seems to have matured from its painful infancy. Is it still just a shallow looter shooter? Should you give Destiny 2 a go? The game is pretty. In the past, it's been said that it's shallow too. Is that true? Short answer, yes. Long answer, no. Destiny's story is rich, detailed and deep. It stretches back millions of years and explores themes ranging from self-determination to the true nature of good and evil, 
It's as politically charged as George R. R. Martin's A Song of Ice and Fire. It has Lovecraftian overtones in the subtle influence of terrible, unknowable ancient entities. It melds science fantasy and post-apocalyptic dystopian futurism with a Warhammer 40,000-like grim-dark atmosphere. And it expresses all of this through deeply human stories and plots, friendships, betrayal, love and family. The current flaw in destiny is that only a small part of this outstanding world-building is expressed in the game itself through design and implementation. The rest is available as scraps of scattered text attached to items and achievements, or occasionally in parts of collector's edition sets and graphic novels. If you want to truly experience what Destiny really is in its entirety, you'll need to do lots of homework. However, there is hope. Since Bungie split from publisher Activision, the gossip in the community is that Destiny is now free to move away from its rigid, story-like looter-shooter archetype and emerge as the role-playing game Bungie talked about back in 2013. Deep lore and engaging gameplay interwoven with character development and a living, evolving world that you and your friends have agency in. The Forsaken downloadable content from late 2018 has been widely praised by both critics and players. Part of this praise relates to how Forsaken wraps the rich lore into the actions you take during the campaign. In short, it becomes more meaningful and deepens the already good first-person shooter experience. Sadly, unless Bungie can somehow rework the huge amounts of Destiny 2 that exist prior to Forsaken, it's likely that a new player might still find elements of the game very shallow. The Red War Core campaign of Destiny 2, followed by downloadable content Curse of Osiris and Warmind, are unlikely to satisfy as much as later content like Forsaken and Shadowkeep. Some things become apparent within the first hour or so of playing. Destiny 2 is very beautiful and location design throughout is excellent. It feels very good too. Movement is responsive, gunplay is rewarding and the locations are superbly crafted. The controls are intuitive for the most part and most people will pick it up within minutes. The second major plus point is the voice acting. It has a great cast who give it everything they've got and that really adds a huge amount to the feel of the game. Overall, the atmosphere of the game is stunningly good. Music, Sound design, characters and art style all coherently come together to make a very immersive experience that will whisper sweet promises to you. The issue for a new player jumping into the game is that Destiny doesn't always take the time to explain things. This can affect both the story elements, such as why you're doing something, and the gameplay itself, or how to do things. This is exactly the problem that part of New Light, developer Bungie's new player experience, is intended to address. My very first experience of Destiny 2 wasn't exactly compelling. Straight after character creation, my shiny new protector of humanity immediately lost a giant war against chunky, armour-clad humanoid space rhinos who captured Bill Nighy for reasons I didn't really understand. Then came a confusing whirlwind of non-player characters shouting things that seemed like they should have been important. I fought through burning wreckage, space rhino corpses and explosions for about 20 minutes until a cutscene showed me the space rhinos doing something to the big ball floating above the city to somehow render me powerless. And I was unceremoniously pushed from a very tall platform by the boss space rhino. This is the start of the first Destiny 2 campaign. 
the Red War. The Red War campaign is where the shallow epithet fits most appropriately. It's clear that generally we were defending the last city since it's mentioned often, and you can see it. It looks amazing. It was also made ploddingly clear that my guardian was special because he had superpowers. And other guardians didn't until the end of the campaign, though why that was so important was vague. My poor guardian was sent alone on dozens of missions to kill thousands of red space rhinos called Cabal, or purple four-armed scuttlers called Fallen, green humanoid bone monsters called The Hive, sometimes black shadow ghosts called Taken, and sometimes golden robots called Vex, with little real understanding of who anyone was or why I had to kill them all. I couldn't help making a comparison between my guardian and the Rick and Morty character Crombopulus Michael, who appears for a brief scene and introduces himself as an assassin with the line, I have no code of ethics. I will kill anyone anywhere. Children, animals, old people. Doesn't matter. I just love killing. The non-player characters often wax lyrical about how they lost their superpowers. But these same characters stand in the main social area surrounded by other Guardian players like you, all of whom do have powers like you. The inexplicable design decision to make your Guardian the hero of the Red War by thematically depowering everyone else essentially ignores that there are literally millions of other players running around as evidence to the contrary. Balancing the need to make the player feel powerful and special with the coexistence of many players is a common problem in MMO game design, which most games deal with more elegantly than this. All of this was supposed to be both the introduction for new players and the transition between Destiny 1 and 2 for veteran players. It was confusing as fuck. A new player's understanding of what's going on doesn't feel markedly broader at hour 30 than it does at hour 1. With new light, your new guardian will have a much, much better introduction to the world. Bungie has smartly created an experience which borrows heavily from the starting missions of Destiny 1. Your guardian will now awake, freshly risen, because guardians are essentially sci-fi zombies with superpowers to receive a proper introduction into the world, just like you would have had if you'd started back in 2014. After that, you'll have various choices about where to go next, and you'll be able to begin Destiny 2 on more stable ground. These storytelling problems persist with the game's earlier expansions. The Curse of Osiris takes place on Mercury, and it feels like Bungie was working harder to integrate the great world-building with what you're actually doing. The second piece of downloadable content, Warmind, makes a lot more sense and is actually pretty great. But for a new player, it's entirely forgettable and does a horrible job of explaining anything. Mars looks and feels good, however, with a Doom vibe. Although that could be because all of the shooting of hordes of monsters and apparent lack of plot... The second downloadable content, The Curse of Osiris, takes place on Mercury, and it feels like Bungie was working harder to integrate the great world-building with what you're actually doing. With the third downloadable content, Forsaken, Bungie set out to make the Wild West of Destiny, and it feels like it. The campaign is compelling, and it takes the time to breathe and explore the characters and lore more than any previous part of the game. The trajectory of improvement from the base game's campaign to the latter expansions is clear.
Bungie is unlikely to be able to fix the problems in the earlier portions of the game. It's just far too much work. There's nothing game-breaking there at all. It's just not as good as we now know Destiny can be. However, later downloadable contents are more holistically designed to wrap deep lore into engaging character dialogue and missions that encourage you to actively explore why you're doing things. A significant example is an episode in Forsaken in which you're asked to make a distinct and permanent choice relating to a character, the morally ambiguous drifter. Your choice will change the missions you get afterwards and might well have larger implications in the future. Forsaken introduced some subtle adjustments to the narrative. Significantly, it quietly noted that there are other heroes of the Red War and other guardians doing things just like you. You are no longer the hero, you're our hero. A subtle shift to something that fits much better with an MMO. As you play through the Red War, Curse of Osiris and Warmind, there will definitely be sections that feel hurried or underexplained and the experience can seem mundane and even disappointingly old-fashioned in places. Certainly prior to Shadowkeep's extensive changes, the game did feel more shallow. It was largely about collecting loot to let you kill harder things, to get more loot, etc. But the good news is that this is very much the past. While Destiny is still a game that rewards you with loot, it feels less desperate. Bungie as a company has changed and evolved, and so has Destiny 2. It's worth riding out the rocky bits because things do get better. Bungie has been paying attention to the community. The numerous quality of life changes that come with new light, including adding a real tutorial and starting point for new players, reshuffling the way missions are displayed, balancing some of the underused weapons, rebalancing the inevitable power creep, and completely revising how armour works to allow full customization and personalization, show that the developers are taking immediate advantage of their newfound freedom. Along with a huge number of minor improvements, New Light will see the core game go free to play. Trying out Destiny will be much easier, and getting your friends involved even casually will allow you to have the best version of the Destiny experience right from the start. To encourage this, Bungie have made the starting level for all characters 750, the game level cap prior to the downloadable content Shadowkeep, specifically so that new players will start on the same footing as veteran players and will be able to join in with friends right away. In addition, the majority of group activities that technically require access to the other downloadable campaigns, Curse of Osiris, Warmind and Forsaken, are included. So now you can play the majority of multiplayer content, including player versus player arena combat, competitive team games, and cooperative missions with your friends, without having to buy anything. So what changed between Mars and the Tangled Shore? What gave this writer the zeal of the convert? 1. There's something here for almost every kind of gamer. Some people will love the shooting aliens in the face part and not really care about much else. Destiny will definitely give you a lot of that. Some people will enjoy the player versus player arena combat or the challenge of the six player endgame missions called raids. Some people will need more than that to keep them loading it up. Destiny has a lot to give, though not all of it is apparent at first. 2. The game is undoubtedly improving. New Light resolves at least the initial player experience and smooths out those bumpy first few hours, and the other tweaks and updates that came with Shadowkeep and will doubtless come in the future are reason enough to keep the faith. 
In his director's cut, frank assessment of the last six months and peek at the future, Bungie developer Luke Smith highlighted many areas that they're unhappy with internally, and also things that they think are great. Whether all these problem areas will eventually be tweaked remains to be seen, but the decision to release this information to the public shows that Bungie are taking things in a new direction. In short, Bungie cares about Destiny and the players. They do listen, and they do want it to be amazing. The third and biggest thing that changed for me is that while I was complaining that I didn't know what the hell I was doing, or why I was doing it most of the time, I remembered it's 2019. And YouTube exists. I discovered a vibrant and passionate lore community who collaborate to piece together the backstory of Destiny and present it in a more digestible format. I watched almost every video from creator My Name is Biff, and I was hooked. From there, I have delved into the work of other lore enthusiasts. There are some great lore masters and lore resources out there. If you're considering Destiny, or have tried it, but it didn't stick... Then have a look at some of the videos, websites and podcasts available and learn about the amazingly detailed backstory. For me, that made the vital connection between a fun but shallow game and the deep, rich and immersive story lurking just beneath the surface. So, why should you give Destiny 2 a go? It's a mechanically good game that's fun to play. Even more so with a few friends. It offers a wide range of activities for both casual and obsessive players, and it's rewarding. It genuinely feels good getting that exotic you've been chasing, or finally completing that mission. If you want more than just a technically good game, Destiny's lore is probably the richest and most detailed work of sci-fantasy in any game. I would be comfortable talking about Destiny in the same sentence as Star Trek, Middle-Earth, and Star Wars when it comes to deep lore. In many ways, with New Light and Shadowkeep, Destiny has risen and gained superpowers. It remains to be seen how it uses them, and that choice is at least partially up to you. The Lost City needs you like never before. Eyes up, Guardian. Beyond the Screen There are many reasons one may choose to play an online game. Maybe it's the latest instalment in a beloved series, maybe it possesses unique or interesting mechanics, or maybe it simply had some good reviews. Arguably two of the more influential factors are the level of immersion offered by a game and the opportunities for socialising or engaging community activities. But have games increasingly been encouraging the latter more than the former? World of Warcraft, released in 2004, is a titan which has dominated the massively multiplayer online role-playing game, or MMORPG genre, for 15 years. When Blizzard Entertainment's iconic game was first launched, it offered players an all-new way to immerse themselves in the world of Azeroth, the setting of Blizzard's previous Warcraft games. These real-time strategy games told the story of conflicts between the Honorbound Horde and the politically volatile Alliance, as well as more malign forces which sought to manipulate both sides. With World of Warcraft, players were given the opportunity to create a character who would be part of the Horde or the Alliance. They could meet beloved heroes and notorious villains from the Warcraft games they had known before, or visit locations they had previously fought over or witnessed in cutscenes. Player characters could take up trades such as mining, hunting or crafting to act as day jobs when they weren't out adventuring. World of Warcraft was designed to immerse players as fully as possible in Azeroth and beyond, 
from the streets of Stormwind to the Arid Plains of Orgrimmar. But World of Warcraft was more than just a journey into legends. Challenges like Kel'Thuzad, the game's original final boss, could only be taken on by a team of around 40 players, all with optimised equipment and abilities and an effective level of communication. To more easily allow players to coordinate in such large groups, World of Warcraft offered the ability to form guilds, a feature which has become a staple in the MMO genre. Guilds rapidly became buzzing social hubs. Players could show their guild allegiance by having their character wear their guild's insignia, while some of the largest guilds competed to be the first to beat new raids and bosses. These social activities were woven into the immersive nature of the game, especially amongst guilds with a focus on roleplay. However, over time the nature of World of Warcraft and MMORPG games in general has changed. Escapist elements have been stripped back in favour of quality of life changes, shorthand for features that remove friction from player experience. An example of this was the introduction of flying mounts to World of Warcraft. Originally, travelling through the game's overworld to reach important locations would be a dangerous journey beset by roaming beasts or opportunistic other players, but with a flying mount such hazards can be entirely ignored. This could be seen as a scaling back of immersion. More recently, Digital Extreme's Space Ninja MMO Warframe, released in 2013, does away with the idea of an overworld entirely, instead keeping individual locations and missions entirely separate and accessible through a few clicks at the navigational screen of a player's orbiter. While multiplayer still exists, and even thrives in newer missions, squads are limited to only four players. Clans are the Warframe's equivalent of guilds, but due to the small squad sizes and lack of competitive mechanics, the dojos often feel isolated and solitary. In the past, there were areas known as Dark Sectors, which clans could battle over to control and tax access to, but these mechanics swiftly stagnated due to lack of incentive and have since been removed entirely. It is now possible to complete any part of Warframe, including a clan, without ever encountering another player. This is not to say that Warframe is entirely without a social side. In fact, the developers enthusiastically encourage the community and enable it to thrive by not only providing forums where players can help each other out or report bugs, but also by engaging with their players through social media. The most notable example of this is the semi-regular dev streams broadcast on Twitch and YouTube, where the lead members of Digital Extreme showcase upcoming additions and changes to the game. Viewers can receive in-game currency as part of a prize draw simply by watching, while suggestions and opinions offered through the live text chat often have an impact on how ideas are finally implemented. A recent example of this was the cleaning drones shown in a rework of one of the planets. These were initially intended to be nothing more than set dressing, but player responses to them were so positive that Digital Extremes added them as decorations players could purchase for their own ships. In a way, this shows a separation of the immersive and social aspects a game like World of Warcraft combined seamlessly. Some developers embrace this wholeheartedly, focusing on immersion at the expense of in-game social aspects, while doing the opposite outside of the game. Paradox Interactive is a prime example, with their sci-fi grand strategy game Stellaris, released in 2016. In Stellaris, players command a newly spacefaring civilization as they take their first steps into a wide and mysterious galaxy. At every turn, anomalous discoveries and scientific advances are woven into the unfolding story of a player's empire. First contact with aliens, burgeoning alliances or rivalries, encounters with ancient beings, and battles with space pirates are not just game mechanics, but part of an epic saga of mystery, discovery, triumph, and humiliation. The only form of communication beyond diplomacy between empires is text chat, and there is no function within the game for forming groups or setting players as friends. 
However, even a cursory glance at Paradox's official Stellaris Twitter or Facebook pages will show that outside the games, things are not taken so seriously. Humorous events or coincidences from within the game are shared and captioned, with the community of players contributing many of the jokes and images shared by the developers. There is even the fan-made Zine Onion news website and YouTube channel, where satirical news headlines and skits are made using the aliens and political mechanics of Stellaris. In these ways, the community celebrates the escapist elements of the game while engaging in social aspects outside of it. A benchmark of yesteryear for immersion in video games is Valve's Half-Life 2, released in 2004, and its episodes that released in 2006 and 2007. These were notable not just for their showcasing of the Source engine, but also for their immersive portrayal of post-alien invasion Earth. While the original games were single-player, first-person shooter and puzzle games, they had such an enduring effect upon fans that the community continued to produce content set in the dystopia of City 17. In the Source Engine Sandbox Gary's mod, for instance, players created role-playing servers to take the place of oppressed citizens or combined civil protection officers. These servers were made with the aim of immersing players in the Orwellian nightmare of the Half-Life 2 universe, but would not have been possible without bonds of community formed through a common interest in the immersive and decidedly single-player world of Half-Life 2. This generally does not work in reverse. There are many games which are never intended to be serious escapist experiences, and the communities which spring up around them only further the social focus of such games. The developers of Team Fortress 2, released in 2007, also by Valve, abandoned their initial idea of a realistic military shooter very early in the creation of the game, instead choosing to adopt a tone and aesthetic closer to a graphically violent Pixar movie. The absurd humour and distinctive art styles still resonate with players over 10 years after the game's launch, and are easily recognisable even to those who have never played it. While there is a convoluted story to the alternate 1972 the game takes place in, this is not referenced within the game whatsoever. Instead, the focus lies on a pervasive sense of silliness and fourth wall breaks, which is only enhanced by the community's contributions. This is a game where bullet wounds and third-degree burns can be healed by consuming a ham and cheese sandwich, rocket launchers can be fired at the user's own feet to jump further, and canned soda allows the drinker to dodge bullets. There are even achievements awarded through Steam for causing other players to quit the game or for dying in especially comical ways. The aim here is clearly not to immerse players, but to encourage them to engage in entertaining interactions. In a similar way, Paradox's Magicka, released in 2011, does not take its subject matter of wizards saving a Norse mythology-inspired world from a Lovecraftian monstrosity at all seriously. The game is dripping with pop culture references, from Star Wars, The Lord of the Rings, and Dungeons and Dragons to Tron, Diablo, and even Highlander. While ostensibly cooperative, the powerful and long-range spells available to players ensure that they are just as likely to kill themselves and their teammates as they are the hordes of goblins and orcs they must battle through. In fact, the game even goes so far as to encourage players to fight each other, through achievements, loading screen tips, and the revive spell being both one of the simplest and first spells players learn. Magicka goes even further than Team Fortress 2 when it comes to breaking the fourth wall, including features such as the Crash to Desktop spell, complete with blue pixelation and a dial-up sound effect. Like Team Fortress 2's achievements, Magicka aims to disconnect players from the game's world and remind them they are sitting in front of a screen, simply sharing a good time with their friends. Interestingly, this shift from immersion-focused to social-focused gameplay persists even as the technology enables more immersive gaming. 
The introduction of virtual reality to the gaming scene brought with it the promise of being able to experience fantastical worlds like never before, literally putting the player behind the eyes of the main character. However, one of the most popular VR games is VR Chat, released in 2017, which is little more than a social platform. Players can give themselves any three-dimensional avatar they wish, and interact with other players in a server primarily through movement and voice chat. This game has no world, plot, or even characters, rather acting as an online equivalent of going to the pub. It brings the long-standing internet chat room into a new medium, somewhat hijacking the idea of immersion to let people socialise. Have online games come to encourage socialising more than escapism? Yes, absolutely. Is this to say immersion has been rendered entirely irrelevant? Not exactly. Many online and VR games still hold immersion as one of their core tenets, such as Elite Dangerous, released in 2014, and Pavlov VR, released in 2017, though it has become almost expected of such games to offer social frameworks beyond their rudimentary friends list. In addition, at the time of writing, World of Warcraft Classic is an upcoming release, which would allow players to experience the MMO as it was in its original 2004 state, when immersion and community were still intrinsically entwined. Perhaps this indicates a revival of escapism in online games, but for now, immersion seems to be occupying its own niche, rather than being the goal of most mainstream games. Worldcon, Dublin 2019 The 77th Annual World Convention of Science Fiction was held from the 15th to the 19th of August at the Convention Centre Dublin and Point Square. Worldcon is one of the oldest international conventions in the world, and over the last few years the city hosting the event has alternated between a European and an American location. The event itself has changed a bit over the years as the tastes of audiences have changed. Worldcon was around before Comic-Cons and cosplay. Its primary fare has always been books, short stories and fandom itself. Whilst there is content that covers all of the different mediums, with large amounts of attention devoted to television, comics, movies, games and role-playing games, the event keeps authors at its heart. Many of the biggest names in science fiction, fantasy and horror attend Worldcon. George R. R. Martin attends every year and there are opportunities to get many of your favourite books signed by their authors, although you might need to queue up. There are readings from new works, launches, panels, presentations and talks throughout the weekend. Worldcon also hosts the Hugos, the world's premier award in science fiction and fantasy writing. When you attend a Worldcon, you don't buy a ticket. Instead, you purchase a membership of the convention. This entitles you to nominate and vote for works in the Hugo long and short lists. This year's event was a testing occasion for the organizers, who had been planning for it since 2015. The Thursday start is always a tricky thing to manage, with many volunteers unable to arrive until Friday. This meant a lot of the initial social media feedback focused on long queues and some disorganization, but solutions were found. Refreshingly, the hosts acknowledged where things went wrong and tried to implement solutions, with a regular, you said, we did, approach to feedback and improvements. The dealers and exhibitors hall was the centerpiece of the convention center on the ground floor of the main hall. As you walked in, right in front was a replica of the Back to the Future DeLorean, gullwing doors open and lights flashing as if they were ready to go. Around the exhibitors hall you found a variety of trade stands and fan tables. 
The former are market stalls from publishers big and small, with Golance and Harper Voyager running their own tables. Forbidden Planet was also there, offering a selection of the kind of titles you find in bookshops or heavily promoted on Amazon. However, of more interest, to this writer at least, are always the indie publisher stands. The United Kingdom and Ireland both have thriving small press industries in science fiction, fantasy and horror, so getting a chance to browse stories from PS Publishing, Luna Press, Newcon Press, Interzone and more was a treat. There are definitely gems to find amongst all these displays. The fan tables were a mixture of Worldcon bid cities, trying to get support for their petitions to host the event in the future. Membership societies like the British Science Fiction Association, of which this writer is chair, and specialist organizations who are offering a specific service, like fandom archive service FANAC, who look to digitize and collate all the published information they can from a variety of publications. Running a table at a convention was a new experience for me, but it did suit our involvement this time, giving us a base in the main hall to plan our activities from. It also meant we got the chance to talk to other table runners next to us and sit down with all sorts of attendees who are interested in British science fiction. The program, available as a PDF and a searchable document through the Grenadine app or via the WebSync link, was huge. Hundreds of different activities could be found with a quick search for a topic, participant or keyword. When attending events like this, it does make me wonder how on earth we ever managed before we had the internet. The panels and talks cater to a vast array of interests. Applications to feature content were sent out months in advance of the event and many researchers had prepared papers and other support material for their audiences. Much of this was presented at Point Square, a mile away from the convention center. I had a paper and a discussion to participate in at Point Square and a panel to contribute to at the convention center. A highlight over at Point Square was the art exhibition with a huge room on the first floor devoted to displaying amazing artwork by painters, crafters and other creatives working in science fiction, fantasy and horror. I met some amazing people on the panels and discussions I contributed to and attended as a member. There wasn't enough time to attend everything I wanted to, which is the mark of a good convention. The Hugo Awards ceremony took place on Sunday night, attended by an audience of convention members and live streamed to the bar at the convention centre. This year wasn't without controversy, as the John W. Campbell Award winner for Best Newcomer, Janet Ng, took the opportunity to call out the deceased editor after whom the award was named as a fascist. After the convention, on August 27th, it was announced that the award would be renamed the Astounding Award for Best New Writer, honoring Astounding Science Fiction, the magazine of which Campbell was once editor. For the complete list of Hugo winners, please see Issue 2 of Parallel Worlds on our website, www.parallelworlds.uk. There were also some issues with the automated closed caption system provided for deaf and hard of hearing convention members. Again, the convention organisers did apologise for this after the award ceremony had concluded, with the convention chair, James Bacon, taking full responsibility. There is a traditional after-party for the Hugos where the nominated finalists are traditionally celebrated above the award winners, leading the party to be dubbed the Losers Party. This emphasis has taken on greater significance in the last few years as the Hugos themselves have come under attack from the activist groups Sad Puppies and Rabbit Puppies, who in the past have tried to manipulate the shortlists. However, these movements have now faded away. The Losers' Party at Worldcon 2019 was to be held at the Guinness Brewery. 
It is traditional that hosts of the next Worldcon organize this part of the event, so Con Zealand 2020 were in nominal charge of the party. However, many of the Hugo Award nominees found themselves shut out of the event due to overcrowding. This was particularly hard on them as, after not winning the award, the way in which the science fiction community traditionally embraces nominees is normally an encouraging and positive experience. Being stranded on the pavement looking into a party you have an invite for is not cool. This was particularly traumatic for those refused admission who had disabilities and had difficulty standing for long periods. The social media accounts and comments in person the next day revealed a great deal of anger and hurt, which apologies from Dublin 2019 and Con Zealand 2020 didn't really address. Monday morning saw the convention winding to a close. Some of the Hugo attendees were understandably sore over the previous evening's events, but continued to fulfil their commitments to the convention, a testimony to their character. Hopefully lessons will be learned and the situation improved for future years. After packing up our fan table, we left the hall to return later for the Dead Dogs Party, an after-convention celebration. This was a good opportunity to get a drink and chat with people we hadn't had time to see all weekend. We flew home on Tuesday evening, having had a great time at the event. Despite the issues mentioned, Dublin 2019, an Irish Worldcon, was an excellent event, and much credit goes to the organisers for pulling it off. Review. Dark. Season 2 of Dark, Netflix's German-language science fiction drama, was released on June the 21st. Dark's first season appeared on my recommended list on Netflix one day last year, untrumpeted, an intriguing thumbnail of a cave. It smacked of opportunism on the part of the algorithms. He likes science fiction, and watches a lot of 1980s films. Let's chuck him this way. He'll probably go for it. I was transfixed. Dark is a beautiful, strange experience. It is worth your time. In a small, rural town in Germany, children start disappearing. Residents quickly draw parallels to disappearances at other times in the town's past, the 1950s and in the 80s. We're introduced to several different families whose lives intertwine. Everyone has secrets, desires and regrets. So far, so it. There's even a yellow raincoat. Shots mainly comprise chiselled German people gazing at each other, or at photographs, to an ethereal soundtrack. This is gentle science fiction in the mould of classic Stephen King. It is not gentle in content, though. All the requisite elements are there. The dead children, the insular rural town, the melancholy inhabitants battling their own demons, revisited throughout their lives, and the central mystery that goes mostly unexplained. It has a dreamlike kookiness like Donnie Darko and some of the zeitgeist of Stranger Things. It's subtler than those influences, though, more about the characters' inner lives than the supernatural menace that prods the plot along. The central conceit of the plot is time travel, but there are no intrepid adventurers dashing about and manipulating events. Dark's time travellers are hopelessly lost, adrift in time, and without agency. Dark is overwhelmingly about sadness. Melancholy invades every frame. Events are tragic, and the time travel only throws this into sharp relief. In one scene, a woman travels into the future not to meet robots, 
but to hide in a garden and see her daughter, cadaverous from cancer and chemotherapy. Dark is all about how little control we have over our lives. Far from mastering time, we're swept along by it helplessly. The message of the series is also about the impact we have on those around us. The characters' casual kindnesses and cruelties touch those they share their lives with and ramify down the years. Seeing characters' actions have dramatic effects on their older selves is one of the show's charms. It's like watching a net of circumstance slowly draw closed around them as they're enmeshed by the weight of their decisions. Their regrets seem to fill the set. Season two, oddly, answers some of the questions posed by season one in the first couple of episodes, but others not at all. It is all densely plotted. Characters zip around the timeline more, and more of them do so, which has the effect of diminishing the gravity of the time travel somewhat. We're introduced to two factions pitted against each other for the fate of the time. To the series' credit, there is ambiguity over which of these we should be rooting for. The second series ends with a customary WTF bombshell. I won't spoil it, but there's a risk that the third season will tack towards action and conflict and away from the low-key mystery that defines the enchanting first season. Dark is Stranger Things for grown-ups, full of sensitivity, melancholy and mystery. It's a slow burn, but meatier than most of its inspirations. Keeping Trek Rubber ears, communicators that look like flip phones, and a familiar spaceship chassis with a forward saucer section and two rear nacelles, Star Trek has some of science fiction's most recognisable hallmarks. To the uninitiated, Trek can seem like the older, nerdier cousin of Star Wars, and the two franchises are often in competition for the same audience. Fans of Trek are often derisively labelled Trekkies, a pejorative they have accepted and turned into a rallying cry. Once you understand the full extent and vision of Star Trek, however, it's clear that the world of Vulcans, Phasers and Starfleet is a truly unique and divergent universe. In the first of a two-part series, we look at the origins and the early history of this famous franchise. The 1960s was a revolutionary period of social change in the United States, and indeed the world as a whole. Whole nations were engaged in the bone-chilling enmity of the Cold War. A rising postmodern movement was challenging conventional wisdom about warfare and pushing back against the costly and unpopular war in Vietnam. Powerful rights revolutions were beginning to alter the United States and global perceptions of blacks, women and other oppressed groups. The creation of the pill led to a different kind of revolution, one in sexual norms and standards. Finally, and of particular interest to the readers of this publication, the United States and the Soviet Union were engaged in a thrilling space race that would culminate in 1969 with Apollo 11 and the moon landing. In the midst of this dramatic change, a television show appeared. It suffered from budget constraints and wasn't particularly popular. Due to a lack of public support, the show only lasted for three seasons. However, the show touched the minds and hearts of millions around the world and spawned one of the most famous franchises in screen history. A man named Gene Roddenberry was the driving force behind the original Star Trek. A former military pilot, he retired after a traumatic crash landing in the Syrian desert and turned his attention to the burgeoning medium of television. He had a hunch, one of many throughout his life, that television was about to become a hugely important influence on culture. After spending a number of years working freelance writing scripts for a number of shows, using his military experience and time working with the Los Angeles Police Department for inspiration, he created a new show based around the Marine Corps, 
the lieutenant. All of these experiences were valuable, and indeed one was pivotal. One episode of The Lieutenant was not broadcast by the network because it centred around racism, including Nichelle Nichols, a name that's now familiar to every Trekkie, as the fiancé of an African-American Marine. Gatekeepers at the time considered the topic of racial prejudice to be too controversial to be the subject of television. Roddenberry was outraged by this decision, and by the time he came to work on his new project, Star Trek, he vowed that it would be an allegorical show. Star Trek got off to a rocky start. Roddenberry made an initial pilot for the show for NBC, famously pitching it as a wagon train to the stars, starring Jeffrey Hunter as Captain Christopher Pike. He brought on former cast members of The Lieutenant in starring roles, including Majel Barrett as Number One, the ship's unnamed first officer, and Leonard Nimoy as the iconic Spock, an alien science officer. The TV executives were impressed with his initial pilot, called The Cage, but ultimately turned it down. They thought it was too cerebral for the average viewer. Roddenberry would later discuss another reason. The casting of a woman as the ship's first officer was seen as preposterous, while the character of Mr. Spock seemed almost satanic due to his makeup and ears. According to Roddenberry, the network offered him a choice. He could either keep Barrett as number one, or Nimoy as Spock, but not both. Roddenberry jokes that he kept the Vulcan and married the woman, because he didn't think Leonard would have it the other way around. Barrett would later join the series as the recurring character of Christine Chapel and would play additional roles throughout later series in the franchise. NBC liked the concept of Star Trek enough to commission a second pilot, an unusual choice at the time. This time, Roddenberry cast a younger actor, William Shatner, in the lead as Captain James T. Kirk, moving Spock up to first officer. The second pilot was more successful. NBC took up the show, and DeForest Kelly joined the cast as Dr. Leonard Bones McCoy. Initially, Star Trek enjoyed high ratings, but by the end of the first season, those ratings had waned, and from that point on, it was in perpetual danger of cancellation. Smart budget decisions and massive letter-writing campaigns kept the show on for three full seasons, at which point NBC finally dropped it. Star Trek was unlike anything that had ever been on television before for a number of reasons. Viewers today will note that some aspects of the show are painfully of the times. Objectification of female characters, some preposterous plot points, and the special effects could be outdone by a capable college student with a laptop today. Still, a number of aspects of the show were not just new, but revolutionary. First, the cast. The crew of the USS Enterprise was, by the standards of the time, breathtakingly multiracial. George Takai as the Asian helmsman Sulu and Nichelle Nichols as the black communications officer Uhura were bold choices, which Roddenberry had to fight the network's tooth and nail to retain. During the first season, Soviet viewers of the show complained that the Enterprise ought to have Russian crew members. After all, Russia had done everything before America, right? Roddenberry thought they had a point, and in the second season brought on Walter Koenig from The Lieutenant as Ensign Pavel Chekhov, with the running gag that he believed that everything, from high-yield experimental grain to the Garden of Eden, were Russian innovations. This was an astonishing move, given that Russian characters at the time were overwhelmingly portrayed negatively in American media. Roddenberry, though, believed that by the time several centuries in the future the series was set, humanity would have set aside its nationalistic and racist ideologies, exploring the galaxy as one people. That meant having a Russian helmsman, a black female communications officer, and an Asian helmsman, each of whom were allowed to express elements of their respective cultures and adopt practices from others. Sulu, for example, was famously a student of fencing. Star Trek was one of the first shows ever to broadcast an interracial kiss, one between Kirk and Uhura, although the context was problematic as both participants were being controlled by sadistic aliens at the time. 
The diversity of the show's cast was hugely influential on a changing society. Nichelle Nichols considered leaving her role as a hero at one point, but was talked out of it by none other than the Reverend Martin Luther King. King told Nichols that the character of Ahura had opened a door for blacks and women alike, and that if she left, that door might be closed. King told her that, for the first time on television, we will be seen as we should be seen every day, as intelligent, quality, beautiful people who can sing and dance, yes, but who can go into space, who can be lawyers and teachers, who can be professors, who are in this day, yet you don't see on television until now. Nichols recalls that when she told Roddenberry about the conversation, Roddenberry replied, God bless Martin Luther King. Somebody knows where I'm coming from. In addition to the cast, the technology of the show was inspirational, even predictive. The crew's communication devices were accurate forecasts of the cellular flip phone. In addition, technology and the discovery of new sources of energy had enabled human beings to nullify the threat of famine and poverty. While our world today has not overcome these issues, we have cut down on starvation and other forms of poverty rapidly over the last several decades. The ship's transporters, devices capable of moving people from place to place in the space of a few seconds, was less of a prediction and more of a handy budget-saving technique that allowed a simple special effect to stand in the place of animating a shuttle landing on a new planet every week. Finally, Roddenberry envisioned that aliens would live and work alongside humans, and that we would be part of a federation of United Nations that would join together for the purposes of cooperative exploration and defence. Even races that challenge us at first, such as the notorious Klingons, would eventually reach an accord with humanity. The show itself employed some fascinating storytelling tropes. The three leads, Kirk, Spock and McCoy, often acted as representations of the Freudian ego, superego and id respectively. The ghost of this dynamic can be seen to an extent in the recent Star Trek reboot films. The show also made extensive use of allegory to bypass media watchdogs that would have quashed certain plots. For example, one episode centred around a race of people who were coloured alternatively white on one side and black on the other. Some members of this race were black on the right side, while others were white on the right side, and the latter members were persecuted severely by their counterparts for no valid reason in spectacularly self-destructive ways that… you get it. The writing was considered clever at that time. In the 70s, Star Trek had been acquired by Paramount in their purchase of Desilu Productions. In an attempt to revive the series, Roddenberry and others tried to get a low-budget Trek movie made. From the beginning, the project was on rocky ground, and by the late 70s it was barely hanging on. The release of a spectacular new science fiction film, Star Wars, was the final nail in the coffin. The breakout success of Star Wars led to the Star Trek film being cancelled altogether and began the two franchises' rivalry. Despite being technically part of the same genre, Trek and Wars had fundamentally different concepts about the future. Star Wars, for example, did not take place in the future at all and was explicitly set a long, long time ago. Nonetheless, the franchise's contrasts have led to enmity between their respective fan bases for many years. Still, Star Trek refused to die and only a few months later a new series was in the works. Roddenberry pitched it to Paramount as Phase 2, a project that would continue the adventures of the Enterprise with a slightly different crew in the helm. Paramount was somewhat looser on the reins than NBC had been, so Roddenberry planned to make some changes with this series. He wanted to show his version of 23rd century Earth and include women in leadership positions. NBC had allowed a maximum of a third of all cast members to be women, Unfortunately, the project faltered and was ultimately cancelled. Paramount eventually realised its advertising couldn't support a fourth network, and Phase 2 became impossible. 
Other members of the crew split from the project over disagreements, and by 1978 only one part of the project was still planned the made-for-television movie that had been planned to kick off the series as a whole. Star Trek The Motion Picture came to theatres in 1978. The first film in the franchise wasn't a thrill ride like the new kids on the block Star Wars and Alien. The slow-paced cerebral adventure drew more inspiration from the original series and from films like Kubrick's 2001 A Space Odyssey, but that had been released 10 years before. Star Trek series fans were an older crowd and flocked to theatres, making the film the best box office performance of 1979. However, it didn't live up to the expectations of Paramount, who were hoping for a genre breakout. The production budget had ballooned to $46 million, massive at this time, along with the marketing outlay, and the film didn't recoup it. Paramount blamed Roddenberry for the failure and jettisoned him from the project, then commissioned a sequel to be written, directed and produced by Harve Bennett and Nichols Meyer. Star Trek II The Wrath of Khan was released in 1982 and was a commercial and critical success. Even today, it is regarded as the best film in the franchise in all its incarnations. Throughout the 1980s, the Star Trek films kept the franchise alive. The ongoing plot of Maya's 1982 sequel left enough threads for several sequels, some successful, some not, but the aging crew of the original series stuck together. Leonard Nimoy took over the director's chair, then William Shatner took a turn. The utilitarian look and feel of this future was quite some way from Roddenberry's original concept, but it recruited a whole new generation of fans. Next month, we explore the 1990s, 2000s, and Star Trek Today. Review Dragon Slayer by Duncan M. Hamilton Epic fantasy is an interesting genre. The traditional blend of a medieval setting with fantastical elements, like magic and dragons, is a popular pathway for writers looking to pen an exciting story and find an audience. Duncan M. Hamilton's Dragon Slayer has a lot of the qualities readers of this type of fiction will like. At its heart, the book is a straightforward quest with our hero, Guillaume del Villarove, or Gil, down in his luck and deep in his cups when we meet him. The stirrings of an old dragon, Alpharaz, who has been disturbed from sleep by the Prince Bishop's mages, provide Gil with an opportunity to restore his reputation. He is tasked by the Prince Bishop to slay the dragon and, despite being aware of the dangers and politics swirling around him, agrees and sets off to complete the task. Hamilton's story is set in a late medieval or early renaissance period, with some blurring between the two to accommodate the specific innovations and technology of the world. Armour is ornate, dueling blades are thin, but there are no cannons or gunpowder weapons. There is a sense of Dumas to the imagery, but no muskets to make our musketeers. The story is a little ponderous at times, as the use of different perspectives gives the reader information that the characters don't have. Gil is slow to recognise that a dragon is threatening the kingdom of Mirabaya. The history of the Chevalier is unpacked in a piecemeal way with different characters learning different things, which means there's a fair bit of repetition for the reader. Similarly, there is a modern take to the detail which at times confuses the scenes. Full cooked breakfasts and casual brewing of coffee, amongst other things, feel like lazy writing. When Hamilton gets into detail in his descriptive writing, the sense of period disappears. Instead, we have some kind of cherry-picked reality in which the reader is not expected to dwell on the detail as the writer himself hasn't considered it overmuch. A specific criticism in this regard is the novel's adversary, Alpharats. The dragon is given the viewpoint at times, which is a nice idea. However, Hamilton's characterization of his antagonist is lacking. 
Our Ferenc comes across as far too human with a touch of antiquity compared to the other characters in the story. There is little sense of this being an intelligent creature with a mind that considers the world in a different way. Instead, the moral constraints of Hamilton's dragons appear to be an analogue of humans, which makes the scenes between Gil and Alpharad something of an exercise in identification and empathy for the reader. Whilst humanising a dragon character can work, there isn't enough in the persona of Alpharad to convey the difference between them. Additionally, Hamilton uses magic in his story as a tool to solve situations in the plot. This can be a way to incorporate it into different scenes, but when done too much it becomes repetitive and an obvious deus ex machina at times. Dragon Slayer is the first of a planned trilogy from Hamilton and a continuation of the story set in his fantasy world. Readers who are keen on fantasy quests might find enjoyment in his work. Dragon Slayer is written by Duncan M. Hamilton and published by Tor. Kickstarter Roundup This month's Kickstarter Roundup features some great board games, video games, tech, and even a programmable robot arm. First off, Battletech Clan Invasion. Battletech is a board game set in the 31st century in which war rages across the galaxy and empires clash in epic combat. Thirty-foot-tall, epic humanoid mechanised titans bristling with weaponry fight for power and the glory of their empire. Originally created 35 years ago, it's been a favourite board game of mine from the start. I love the way that the mechs have damage sheets which target different parts of the robot. You might take damage to an arm, leg or weapon, but can carry on regardless. These machines can take a serious beating before giving up. The game has made it into a series of successful video games under the name Mech Warrior, and also last year's Battletech. But while good games in their own right, the video games don't quite capture the brilliance of the board game. Twelve years ago, Catalyst Game Labs modernised the rulebooks and relaunched three variants, along with dozens of sourcebooks and new miniature models. Now, Battletech Clan Invasion has been kick-started to retool these miniatures and offer a brand new box, offering advanced mech combat with five models, two maps and all the rules you need to enjoy this excellent game. Unsurprisingly, the campaign was funded within seven minutes and has raised over $2.5 million. It's now available to pre-order. Next up, the RetroStone 2 Ultimate Retro Gaming Console. 8B Craft are no strangers to Kickstarter, having already successfully launched the handheld retro games consoles Raspy Boy and RetroStone. Now they've listened to all the feedback from the first two consoles and are back with RetroStone 2, a completely redesigned and improved handheld retro gaming console which promises to offer the best and simplest retro gaming experience possible. There are over 50 supported video game systems including Game Boy, Game Boy Color, Game Boy Advanced, Super Nintendo, NES, Mega Drive Genesis, Master System, Game Gear, Atari, Amiga, PC Engine, PlayStation 1 and more. The RetroStone 2 comes with an HDMI out allowing you to plug it into a TV, three USB ports, a micro SD slot and an audio jack with a volume control and has a 3.5 inch screen with a 640 by 480 resolution. 
With a Kickstarter goal of £27,429, the Retrostone 2 has already raised over £91,000. This is one of the best recent examples of retro gaming consoles, and the small size makes it an ideal choice. Next up, Zenith, the cyberpunk massively multiplayer online game. I'm surprised that cyberpunk isn't featured more in gaming. Who else can't wait until Cyberpunk 2077 hits the shelves? Thankfully, video game developer Andy Tsen agrees with me and is planning on creating a big, dynamic, massively multiplayer online game or MMO for PC and VR. The look draws a great deal of inspiration from anime, providing a cleaner, brighter version of Cyberpunk than most creations. Zenith promises cross-platform play, where you'll be able to explore, craft, fight, join guilds and build friendships. There'll be world events, but also the ability to just go it alone should you so choose. Cross-platform promises to be true cross-platform, not just PC and PC VR, but on any of the VR platforms that the game's created on. This currently includes Oculus, HTC Vive, Valve Index and PlayStation VR. What really excites me as a gamer, though, is the promise that this huge, dynamic, immersive world will have real physics, complex AI, and a landscape that evolves and is shaped by players and non-player characters alike. Real physics is something lacking in most MMO games. I'm not the only one who sees a great deal of promise in Zenith, and the project was fully funded in just four hours, a target of £20,000 and at the time of writing has already achieved over 130,000. Next up, the MyRobot, a six-axis mini-industrial robot arm. This might not be the cheapest of Kickstarters, setting you back $335, but who wouldn't want their own robot arm? Just imagine the possibilities. Scare your pet. Begin your first steps towards world domination. Or perhaps just program it to lift stuff so you don't have to. Inspired by the ABBIRB6700 robot used in factories around the world, this six-axis high-spec arm is a first in affordable robotics. With open-source software and a gentle learning curve, it makes an excellent introduction to the wonderful world of robots. It's also incredibly precise and can be easily programmed for a wide variety of commands. It can be fitted with different arm attachments for gripping or drawing. The arm doesn't suffer from robot jitters either, as the motors used are smooth and stable. The robot can be controlled via computer, handheld control panel, or even via a phone app. Unsurprisingly, at the time of writing, the campaign has already reached over £190,000, against a target of 24000 Next, Evil Dead 2, the board game. A few years ago, there was a successful Kickstarter campaign for an Evil Dead 2 board game. Unfortunately, the game never materialised. The unscrupulous company took the money and delivered nothing, leaving thousands of backers out of pocket with nothing to show for it. Step forward Jasco Games, seasoned board game publishers, who've started this Kickstarter with hopes to get this board game finally made. Not only have they promised to actually deliver an officially licensed game, they've also kindly offered to give a copy free of charge to all those backers who lost out in the first Kickstarter, with just costs of delivery to be paid. 
This alone merits backing the Kickstarter, but the game itself sounds promising too. Essentially reliving the classic film, three to six players must work together to close the portal or betray each other for evil. The game comes with 46 well-made miniatures, including character versions for good and evil, a well-designed reproduction of that famous cabin where all hell breaks loose, and the usual cards, tokens, and rulebook. There's also an optional extra purchase of the film as a hardback graphic novel. Next, another PC game, this one called Incodia. What happens if you combine the atmosphere of Blade Runner with the humour of Monkey Island and the style and creativity of Studio Ghibli? According to the creators, you get Incodia. Set in a dystopian world of 2062, Incodia follows Tina, a nine-year-old inhabitant of Neo-Berlin, a dark megapolis under strict control by huge corporations. Tina lives with an unusual guardian, a hulking robot by the name of Sam 53, and together they eke out an existence by scavenging from city dumpsters. One day, Tina discovers that her father left her an important mission, to save the world from this drab greyness. In Codia is played as a point-and-click adventure, reminiscent of that revolution classic Beneath a Steel Sky, an award-winning, incredibly well-made game which came on 15 floppy disks. In Codia has great visuals, over 30 characters in more than 50 locations, professional voice actors and an original music score. Finally, there's Dungeons and Lasers, Plastic Tabletop Scenery. Last month we mentioned Chlorhaven and the Goblin Grotto, a campaign aimed at allowing those with 3D printers to print tabletop set pieces to really bring their gaming to life. Dungeons and Lasers is a Kickstarter that actually provides such set pieces, in science fiction and fantasy themes without the need to 3D print anything. Made using hard plastic in sharp detail, these kits are easy to assemble without glue and can even be stacked creating multi-level dungeons. There are a number of different sets and miniature models, including cats, to choose from, and they really do look the part, even unpainted. The sets have been made in modular, clickable format, which allows them to be compatible with most major tabletop games. The Kickstarter goal was £32,000, and at the time of writing, there's been over 220000 pledged. So expect this project to become a reality soon. Thank you for listening to Parallel Worlds Issue 2. This issue featured articles written by Alan Stroud, Ant Jones, Ben Potts, Christopher Jarvis, Connor Eddles, Louis Calvert, Richard Watson, Thomas Turnbull Ross and Tom Grundy and was edited by Alan Stroud, Jane Cluett and Tom Grundy. This audio edition featured the voices of Jamie Sugar, Kareem Cronfley, Peter Wotherspoon, Sarah Golding and Scott Cleverton and was edited by Christopher Jarvis. Music was composed and performed by Dustin Midnight Driscoll. We would like to thank our Patreon subscribers for their continued support. For copies of back issues of our magazine and podcasts, visit our website, www.parallelworlds.uk. 